I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles now. Let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We've been studying the story for the last couple of weeks. We're going to finish the story tonight. It's the Passover story, or uh, the story that, that really depicts uh, in advance what Jesus did in saving us by his blood. These people were saved because they applied the blood, the, the blood of that lamb that was slain there on the Passover night, as God had told them to. They had been obedient to put the uh, uh, blood of that lamb, sacrificial lamb, on the doorpost and on the lintel. And it's from their obedience that God preserved them or saved them. They, they found salvation for the family through their firstborn that was threatened uh, to be killed. God was going to slaughter the firstborn of, of the disobedient. He is uh, working in his tenth um, um, plague. The, remember the word plague means strike. These were strikes against the gods of Egypt. And this is God supernaturally and sovereignly working to show Pharaoh and the Egyptian people that he alone is God, Yahweh. And so we, we went through each one of those plagues. And when we finished the 10th plague, we've been in this narrative for the last couple of chapters all about this Passover feast and how important it is. And so we're getting this narrative. God told Moses, then Moses is telling the people, and it's really the importance of how they're to celebrate when they get into the promised land. It's going to be 40 years or so, but they're going to finally get to the promised land. And when they come in there, God has required these people every year around the harvest uh, time, the first harvest, which would be March uh, of the year, they were to celebrate this Passover in remembrance and to, to, to remember all that God's done in preserving, delivering them. So that's really what this story is about. We're going to look at the end of it tonight. We'll be in chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, as well as the beginning of chapter 13. I've entitled this section, Leaving Egypt. So with your Bibles open, let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we do thank you this evening for the word. As we study verse by verse here on Wednesday night, this wonderful Old Testament book that expresses and explains to us the sacrificial lamb, the, the blood that was slain for the deliverance of the Israelites, and how it pictures so perfectly the fact that you, Father, sent your son, Jesus Christ, and he came as the Pascal lamb as the sacrificial lamb, and he died in the place of all of us, in, in, in the place of our sin. He took our sin upon his body, and his blood was shed for remission of sin. And Lord, as we study this story again, I pray that there would be application for us as believers. Help us, Lord, to understand, to study, and to uh, really get the most we can from this portion of Scripture. Teach us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, this first uh, point comes from verse 40 of Genesis or uh, Exodus chapter 12, Exodus 12. And I've, I've entitled it, Promised Deliverance to the Day, right down to the very day. Notice here in verse 40, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years 
on that very same day. Interesting verbiage there. It came to pass that all the people, they're known as the armies, but this massive group of two million Israelites, they went out from the land of Egypt. Now Moses is very clear about this day, and I want to look at this day before we move through the rest of the text tonight, because there's a lot written about this day uh, in the Bible. There's a lot of controversy. I don't think it should be, but Christians, they pick up on one little thing and they make a big deal about it, and they everybody knows more about than the, than the other guy. And and I'm going to give you my simple explanation of what I believe this is saying. But the 430 years here in uh, verse 41, on that very same day, is what Moses says. And the reason I, I bring it up, because it's, it's brought up in the Old and the New Testament with a different number, but basically the same story. In Genesis 15, I'll put it behind me on the screen. You could look at your Bible if you'd like. But Genesis 15, 13, then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land. So God is prophesying or foretelling Abraham that his descendants, which he doesn't have, by the way, in this, he doesn't have them yet. He's still, he and Sarah are still barren. But your descendants, all these people that you're going to have in the future that are going to come from your body, he's explained that in Genesis. He said, in a land that's not theirs, and they're going to be in that land, but notice what it says, they're going to be afflicted for how many years? 400 years. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, before he is stoned to death, the first Christian martyr, he says something about the 400 years. Acts 7 verse 6, but God spoke in a way as Stephen is, he's, he's referring to all the old stories and he's trying to help the elders and the Pharisees know that Jesus is Messiah in that long narrative there in Acts 7. But he says, but God spoke in a way that his descendants, that's Abraham, would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. Then in Acts, I think it's 15, there's a reference to 450 years. So there's these different accounts and different numbers of years, but the same story here. And, And here's what I want to help you understand here. The reason that I believe when I read the scriptures, and I hope that you interpret the word this way, that you see it as your authority, that you're not the authority. It's not up for you to tell the Bible what it means. It's up for you to just say, wow, Lord. And that's how I read the scripture. I read the scripture as it's my authority. And as I do that, I believe that I get the truth from it. And so I'm encouraging you to do the same. I believe it's infallible. But there's a couple of of different reasons why we have these two different numbers here. Now, in both of these accounts that I just showed you in Acts 7 and Genesis 15, let's go back to the Genesis 15 account, Eddie. Notice what it says there. It says, know certainly that your descendants. Now, go to Acts 7, and there it says that God spoke in a way that his descendants. Whose descendants are we talking about? Abraham's. So keep that in mind. We're talking about Abraham's descendants there, and I think that's a key to understanding this text here. Those those, um, references there that have to do with his descendants, again, we go to chapter 
12 of Exodus and look at verse 41. And it says here, it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that same day. Now, Moses is pointing specifically to Abraham. And Genesis 15 and Acts 7, uh, that's Abraham's descendants, but they're talking about Abraham's son who would become Israel. Remember his name? Whose name was changed to Israel? Jacob. So Jacob, the son, if you, if you count for his life, you've got 400 years. But when you account for Abraham, Abraham, remember, he was brought down to Egypt. Why? Why did he go down there? Because his sons were threatened. That's where the food was. He ended up going down there, and he lived for how long? 30 years. So the 430 years, I think, are very easy to describe when you look at it in, in that way. 430 years. Moses is trying to help you and I understand in this narrative here that we're reading in chapter 12 that it's Abraham's descendants. The other texts talk about his descendants, but they're talking about Jacob and his 12 sons. Remember, because that's the focus. The, it's the children of Israel that are going to leave uh, the, uh, Egypt. But Moses accounts for Abraham in those extra 40 years. So that's one way, again, to look at that. But here's the greater point. This story that we're going to look at is all about a memorial for the redemptive work of God. The story really is about God. It's not about Jacob. It's not about Israel. It's not even that much about the children of Israel. It's about the power of God to deliver his people by his blood. That's the focus here, and that's what's supposed to be remembered. Again, the deliverance from Egypt was like nothing else before it. And it's not, it's not like anything else in the Bible. Until you get to Jesus Christ in the New Testament, and you see the deliverance of the sacrificial spotless lamb who delivered sinners by his blood, his, his blood sacrifice, there, it's just all about the redemptive work there. So going to verse 42, back here in Exodus 12, it is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observant for all the children of Israel, for all their generations. So God wants them to recall. He wants them to remember this Friday night, as a reminder, by the way, we're having our Valentine's banquet. Don't forget, it's not Saturday, it's Friday night. But we're going to go through this period of Valentine's Day. And for those of us that have been married for many years, 40 years, it's hard to remember everything, but there's certain things I do remember. I remember my wedding day. I don't remember a lot of things that happened between my wedding day and now. My memory doesn't, isn't that that good or sharp, but I do remember my wedding day. You might remember a graduation. There are things in your life that are super easy to remember because they were so significant. This is one of those things that God wants his people to build a memorial around. He wants them to get it and remember it, and every year they're going to feast for this period of seven days. Remember the Passover feast on day one? And then this feast of unleavened bread. So for seven days, one week, these people we're going to feast and celebrate and remember. It was a time of joy. It was a time of feasting. It wasn't a time of sadness. It was, a, it was to be a time of joy. But God wants his people to remember that his 
miraculous delivering of, of these two million people that were in bondage to sin. They were in bondage to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. And God wants him to remember that, that on this night, the Passover, the death angel came, but for those that obeyed, for those that put their faith in, in God and his word and obeyed God by spreading, by uh, eating that Paschal lamb, spreading the blood on the doorpost and the lentil, the Passover angel would then pass over them and they would be saved, their firstborn in their house. Again, the application for us as believers, New Testament Christians, you and I, God's deliverance is pictured, think about this, in communion. Every time we receive it, we did that last Sunday morning, we're reminded of what? The blood reminds us of what? Jesus' sacrifice. The, the bread reminds us of what? That Jesus' body was broken willingly, that he went to the cross vicariously, that he went and hung there in our place. Communion is our reminder as New Testament believers. No longer are we to celebrate the Passover. You can. You can do it. You can have a Seder feast as a Christian. You can celebrate that. It's, it's a ceremony. There's nothing um, for the, the, the uh, Christian in that celebration. It's really for the Jew. But when we have communion, and I hope that you sensed that joy last Sunday. I hope communion isn't for you just a, a little cup of juice and it's real quiet and you just, I hope it's like, oh, Lord, that you would, this cup, it represents that new covenant in your blood, Lord. When I look at it, when I take it, I'm just filled with joy and relief and freedom and liberty that I have in Christ. It's that kind of a feast. Communion should be that way. I, I think sometimes we make it a little bit too soft and solemn. I like to have the elders pray when I, when I don't over-preach and there's no time for them to pray. I have to kind of keep things going. But, but I love to hear the elders pray. And then I love on Sunday night how we open it up and let people thank God. And the congregation prays kind of in what we, what we say, conversational prayer or popcorn prayer. I kind of like that too. We're, we're rejoicing. We're thanking God for all that he's done. Communion is what we do in the New Testament to celebrate this thing, this same uh, event in some way. We're celebrating Christ. They celebrated that Pascal Lamb. God wanted his people to do it over and over every year. And so that's, again, why God commands Moses and Aaron to institute this, this ceremony or the Passover, my next point, the Passover ordinance. Look at verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is an ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money. When you have him circumcised, then he can eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry it in the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Again, he's talking about this Passover feast. And he's saying, why is he saying this? Because last week, when you remember, we got through chapter 12, and we saw that there were some Egyptians that obeyed, that they spread the, the uh, uh, blood, and their firstborn was saved. And they left Egypt with 
So there was a few Egyptians that left with the uh, two million Jews in that, in that massive group of people that left. There's some Egyptians that went along. So now God's saying, okay, they're, they're with you. You've got, a, you've got a mixed group here, but they're uncircumcised. Remember, circumcision was the mark of being uh, 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 owned by God, having God as your father. For these ancient people, that's what God had prescribed through Abraham. So all of his children, it was circumcision. That was the mark. And so God says, you cannot take it, and a foreigner shall not eat it unless they are circumcised. They have to be a part of the people by circumcision. In other words, they couldn't just come along and, and be partially kind of like the rest of the Jews. They had to be full on, total commitment. Just like when you come to Christ, you don't come to Christ and say, well, I'll take a little of church and I'll read the Bible a little bit and I'll take a little bit of the things that please me. No, you either are full on into Christ and, and you're born again or you're not. You're not. You're not a half Christian. You're not partial Christian. You're either full-on Christian or you're not. It's a full-on and total commitment when we come to Christ. And notice in verse 46, in one house it shall be eaten. I love the fact that it's a lamb. Remember, we learned this a couple weeks ago, a lamb for every house. So every family gathered together. The father was then to institute. The father is seen as the priest of the head of the home, and he was supposed to institute this. I believe that elders in the church are to be men in the scriptures. I believe that in the home, that you as a father, if you have children, it's your responsibility to be spiritual at home. It doesn't mean you're, you know more than your wife, but you're to be the leader. You're to lead in prayer. You're to lead in Bible reading. You're, to, you're the priest of the home. If you don't have any, anybody at home, then you still read the Bible at home as a man or as a woman. But again, in the scriptures, over and over again, you'll see that in the family, God has placed the man to be in that spiritual leadership. And how sad it is for me to hear about men that have been in the church for many, many years, and it's their wife that's more spiritual, that she uh, carries that load of teaching and training and instructing. Again, we see that here in the scriptures, the emphasis on the family and parenting and the father. We'll, I'll show you that in a moment. And then at the end of verse 46, nor shall you break one of its bones. Again, none of the bones of the Passover lamb were to be broken. If you look forward to Jesus, remember none of his bones were broken. His body was broken. His bones were not broken. His body was broken in the whipping and the scourging that he endured for you and I in our sins. But um, none of his bones were broken. Speaking of his crucifixion, verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Again, he's reiterating that. This is important. You're totally committed. And if, if you're going to take it, you have to be circumcised. You've got to come in to become this uh, convert, in a sense, a proselyte of a Jew, and you had to be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. So they are all the same. And that speaks, again, as, as the New Testament church. We have Jew and Gentile coming together in what Paul in Ephesians 5 calls this great mystery, the mystery of the church. 
What's the mystery? It's not a mystery It's because it's been revealed. It's the Jew and Gentile coming together, and we form this new entity called the church. We're the bride of Christ. We're looking forward to the second coming of the Lord when he'll take us away, and we'll be married for eternity in heaven at the marriage uh, feast of the Lamb. Now, verse, uh, let's see. I, I already read verse 49, didn't I? One law shall be for the native born. Okay, and he dwells with you. Okay, so New Testament believers, we are, are grafted into and we become this, oh, it, it's, it's such a beautiful picture. We become part of the body. And we're grafted in in such an interesting way, but not by circumcision. When we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we have a celebration that's different than but similar to. And I'm talking about water baptism. Water baptism is an identification with Jesus Christ for the believer. I'm identifying with Jesus' death. As he was buried for three days, and in water baptism, what do we do? We, as a pastor, will hold you under the water. That signifies a death and burial. And then you're raised to new life, just like Jesus Christ. So you're identifying with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Paul wrote this, and I, I love this, Romans 6, verse. Or do you not know, Paul says, that as many of as us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, and, that, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Again, that's a picture of the death and the resurrection. For the Jew, for the Jew it was this circumcision that brought them into the family, that brought them into the native family. For you and I, it's this symbolism through baptism. Again, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the old life being washed, the old life being buried, and then coming up to new life in Christ. Water baptism is a public outward symbol or testimony that indicates something that God's done in my life. If you've never been baptized, you should be baptized. You should um, uh, come to one of our baptisms that we do uh, once or twice a year, depending on what's going on at our church. We've got one planned. I think it's in June. We're going to be back out at the, the water park in uh, that water park over there in Fontana at the aquatic park over there. It's been a lot of fun where the kids run around and play, and then we stop for a moment, and we have a baptism. People come and get baptized. Again, it's, it's a beautiful picture of... Uh, what God's done in your heart, he, he's done something inside, and so now you express it as an outward symbol publicly by being water baptized. So we don't need to be circumcised. Um, we have water baptism as our ordinance. Uh, it, it, water baptism doesn't save you, but it's an ordinance, just like communion. We're told to do it. Jesus told his disciples to go out and baptize and make disciples, so we do that out of out of that command or that ordinance. But baptism doesn't save, it's just a symbol. And again, just like these symbols that, that God is 
wanting his people to celebrate in this Passover uh, celebration, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Verse 50, thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, according to their, again, the word armies. There were so many of them. The, the scripture, Moses says armies, just, a, again, two million people. Now, as we go into chapter 13, and we're just going to just hit the first few verses here, I'm going to split it up really quick here. I'm going to skip these first two verses because they go along with some later verses when we get to verse 11. And I want to start at verse 3 in chapter 13. You'll understand as we go. You'll, you'll get it. But with his first point here in, in verse 3 of chapter 13, the feast of unleavened bread. So he's expressed the need for the children of Israel to do the Passover. They've got to do it. They've got to do it every year. Now we're going to talk about the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Moses, again, he's going to retell this requirement of keeping this feast, the seven-day feast that was required of the people. Again, it's a reminder of what God has done. And I love the fact that even in communion, we have the two elements, right? We have the bread and we have the cup. And these people have the Feast of unleavened bread, and then they have the Passover that represents the blood that was, sh was shed. Again, Scripture is so beautifully good. You couldn't write a story like this. I don't care how good a writer you are. You're, God has just written this story so beautifully as you read it uh, in its entirety, Old and New Testament. But here it is. Moses is, is going to share this requirement that God has. And this feast, again, it's a time of joy. It's a time of, of God's deliverance. They're supposed to be happy when they do it. Verse 3, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Now you remember last week I went into the big deal about leavened bread and how it represents sin in the Bible. And the reason they were not um, able to, uh, to have leaven in their bread, number one, was because they had to leave so quickly. When that tenth plague happened, remember, that was when Pharaoh kicked them out. It's like, we don't want you or your people, your cattle, your wives. Remember, he had made deals through the other plagues, Pharaoh did. You can go, but you've got to leave the cattle. You can go, but you've got to leave your wives. And now it was like, you take everybody and split. We don't, we don't ever want to see you again. So the children of Israel, they don't have time to put leaven in their bread. But number two, and more importantly, leaven represents sin. God is delivering his people from sin. That's Egypt and all the false gods because they couldn't worship him there. Remember, he kept saying over and over and over again, he says, you know, I'm going to deliver my people so they can come and they can worship me. Pharaoh says, now I'm God, they can't leave. Remember, over and over, and then God, plague after plague, and finally Pharaoh kicks him out. And now God has this feast. They're not to put leaven in their bread. Leaven represents sin. And so for those seven days, they can't have leaven anywhere. It can't be in their house, and it can't be in their bread. They sh it says, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Now, the New Testament has its equivalent, and I'm, I'm hoping to show you that tonight. You see the, the different equivalents I'm giving you in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says this. He says, therefore, purge out the old leaven. What does leaven represent? 
sin. Paul is saying, get rid of the sin that you may be a new lump. He's comparing your life metaphorically to this dough, this bread, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. You see the inference there? See how it all ties together? Old and New Testament again, so beautiful the story. But God commanded that leaven which was to be purged from their homes, purged from their houses and food, and they were not to eat leavened bread. So only unleavened bread for the seven days. And verse 4, on this day, you are going out in the month of Abib. And so the feast, again, directly associated with the date in Exodus, on this day, remember 430 years that very day. So on that day, every year they're to commemorate this feast, Passover, Unleavened Bread. And by the way, that's the same feast Jesus was celebrating the night before his crucifixion. Interesting how that all aligned just perfectly, isn't it? Uh, again, I, I love the scriptures. Verse 5, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Again, he's saying in this month, Abib, this time of the harvest, every year, this very day, the very time, year after year, for generation after generation after generation, you will keep this feast. And they keep it. And they'll keep it in a few weeks. There's going to be Passover. And they'll do it in Israel, and they'll do it in every country where there's Jews in the world. They keep that feast even to this day. But God had promised Abraham way. I mean, it's hard to remember. We studied this about a year and a half ago, but Genesis chapter 15. And God was telling Abraham that he, he says, look up into the stars in the sky, Abraham. Abraham was like, but I don't have any kids, remember? And God says, look up into, what do you see? Well, there are stars. Can you number them all, Abraham? No. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Can you imagine? He probably took a breath, like, really? I don't have any kids right now. And God promised him. And then the Bible says this in Genesis 15, and Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as what? Righteousness. Just as you and I come to Jesus Christ, and we believe by faith in his his uh, death and resurrection, and he accounts that by faith to us as what? Righteousness. In other words, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Even though you're a blow-it, even though you're a loser, even though you're a sinner, even tonight, as a Christian, God sees you as righteous. Man, talk about liberty, talk about joy. Talk about being stoked. I mean, that's, that's awesome. But it's in Genesis 15, and notice the scripture behind me here. Then he tells Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, and I'm going to give you something. What is it? Land. Remember? He promised descendants, and he promised Abraham land. And he had brought Abraham, if you can remember back that far, he brought him from Ur of the Chaldees, 
Remember up the Fertile Crescent, all the way up him and his dad spent up there, way up in the north, and they came down. And when they came down into the land of the Canaanites, God says, this is going to be your land. It's from the ocean all the way, you know, to what's modern-day Iraq now, through, through that whole country, almost to Iran. That was to be Israel. That's the promised land. So God promised him that land. So the feast that they're celebrating, it's, it's a reminder for them to, to know that God had power, that God delivered them from their bondage. And the feast was to remember to remind them again that they would, as they entered that land, they were to over and over and over to do the feast again and again to be a reminder. Verse 6, seven days. How long did the feast last? There it is, seven days. You shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord, party. So they started out feasting, partying, joy. Then they would go the whole week, unleavened bread. And at the end of it, they would end their seven days days of unleavened bread with another feast and they're partying and they're they're showing joy and they're singing and they're delighting in the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, verse 7, and so leavened bread shall be seen among you. Or, pardon me, no, I said so, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. So these individual instructions about the people and, and the feast, the Passover, the unleavened bread, all of these things have meaning. And they're to remind those people. Verse 8, and you shall tell your sons in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did. And I want you to notice this. For what the Lord did for who? Now, didn't the Lord save all of the children of Israel? Why do you think Moses wrote this in verse 8? Tell your sons, whenever you do this feast, and Daddy, why are we doing this? Why is everybody happy? Why, are, why don't we have uh, bread that's puffy? Why do we eat this flat bread? Well, let me tell you, son. Let me tell you what God did for me. Not just the nation. Not for this large group, but the individual. Salvation comes to the individual, not to the nation. You're not saved because your family's saved. You're not saved because your pastor is. You are saved individually because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I love what he says here. Tell your sons, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. So you got to think, you know, 100 years later, 500 years later, 2,000 years later, 4,000 years later, what the Lord did for me. They were told to tell these people over and over, because salvation is individual. It's not a nation. But God did save the nation, yes. But salvation was for the individual. Salvation was for the individual house. Each house had a lamb, remember. Each home had their priest, their father, who would, would slay the lamb. And it was cooked up. They were to consume the lamb, not keep any more. They were spread the, the blood on the doorposts and the, and the lentil. Very important. Individual. Salvation is for the individual. And I, I love that truth. Someone said there are no spiritual grandchildren in heaven, only children of God. Isn't that true? You come to the Lord alone of your own volition. 
God saves. And for those that repent and believe out of obedience, we get the joy of salvation. Again, that's why the father here is to explain to his children in verse 8. And you shall tell your son in that day. This is what the Lord's done for me. I, I love that verse. I, I, I looked at that verse for an hour this today. And I just started to marvel and think about that and the glory in that. That's salvation. Salvation is for me. I think sometimes we forget. We go to church, we see our friends, we hear a message, we listen on the radio to some teaching, and we forget that salvation is for us. That's for the individual, and God has a work to do in our lives, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to be a witness and empowers us to share our gifts to make the body whole. And we think in terms of those kind of things, your Christian life becomes so, so much more vital so much more even, even enjoyable. It's fun. Here's the truth here. What Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago for his disciples, for all those people that he healed and he worked with there in Galilee for the three years of his public ministry, what Jesus did on the cross, he did for those people, but he did it for me. He did it for you. He died you, each one of us can say that. In fact, let's say that tonight. Let's wake up for just a moment. Jesus died for you, or he did it for me. So I want you to say, he did it for me. He did it for me. Jesus died for you. Jesus' sacrifice was for you as an individual. That should just really bless your heart. Again, I love that truth. And then notice verse 9. It shall be a sign to you on your hand, and a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Now this little verse here, verse 9, where it says you should keep it as a memorial between your eyes, this is what the Jews eventually came up with. This is called a phylactery. I got this the last time I was in Israel. You can wear a phylactery in two different places. I actually have two different ones here. And somebody's glasses. I have no idea whose these are. You can claim your glasses later. But these phylacteries, it's just a little box with, you put prayers in here, in this little box. And then you put this on your head or your, around your arm. You would put it on your head this way and you'd wrap it around your head, or you put it on your arm. There's this, the, the uh, Jewish man that showed me, sold me this and told me about this. He was quite a salesman. He was really fun to talk to. But you wrap it around your arm seven times. There's a certain way. It's really long, but you can wrap it around your, your arm. I'm not smart enough to do it. I don't really remember. Esther was there with me. He showed us. You wrap it around your arm. So they would have it on their arm, or they would have it as prayers, psalms. All the t it would, most of the time, there were psalms that were in there. Um, and, or they put it on their head. And even today, there are those that wear a phylactery. The problem in Jesus' day, and we've been learning this on Sunday morning, were the, the Pharisees and scribes, they just got bigger boxes. And the boxes got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know. And so the bigger the box, the more spiritual you were. See, that was, and the, the, the scribes and Pharisees did that. The original intent came from, though, this portion of Scripture and 
in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus where God told them to bind it to their eyes, to bind it. And it really, God's, it was symbolic for God to say. He didn't say physically bind it. Although, you know, if you need a reminder, some of you have tattoos. I've seen some of you guys have tattoos on your wrist, John 3.16 or whatever. That's an interesting way to, to bind the scripture on your body. But just to get it in your mind, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Paul said. Memorizing the word of God. Really important for you as a believer to grow is to memorize God's word, to bind it there between the frontlets of your eyes, to keep it right there focused as you go through your day making decisions. The word of God, so, so important there. And then finally here, this section that includes the first two verses and then verses 11 through 16, I call consecrating the firstborn. So let's go back to verse 1. We'll read verse 1 and 2, and then we'll jump to verse 11. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, to consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine. And then verse 11, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers. That's that Genesis 15 passage that promised Abraham and gives you this land. When you finally get to Canaan, verse 12, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, the firstborn, that comes from animal or your sons, your males. And they're all the Lord's, the firstborn, in verse 13. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall remain or redeem with a lamb. The, a donkey is an unclean animal. There's a lot of unclean animals according to Jewish law. And there were animals that were not fit for consumption and so those had, they were atoned for, and in this case, you know, an unclean animal. Uh, it didn't have to necessarily be sacrificed because they would eat the sacrificial animal. In this case, the firstborn, if it was a donkey, you didn't sacrifice a donkey is what he's saying. You just did the animals that were clean, and then they would eat those animals as well. But every firstborn of a donkey, you should resume a lamb. So you put a lamb in its place. And then if, if, it's, if it's too weak, if it can't live, then you break its neck. It's just a, a form of, of uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, just, yeah, kindness. Uh, um, instead, of, instead of just, you know, slaying the animal, you break its neck to kill it quickly. And all the firstborn of the man among your sons you shall redeem. So again, this word consecrate here, that's what we're doing. We're consecrating the firstborn. We're devoting the firstborn. They belong to God. That's what God is saying here. And notice at the end of verse 2, here's why. It is mine. In other words, firstborn animals, firstborn sons belong to God. They're consecrated to God, both man and beast. And so you ask the question, why? What, what could possibly be the reason for this? Well, verse 14. So it shall be when your son asks you in the time coming, saying, why are you doing this? What's the firstborn? What's the consecration that you shall say? By strength of the hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, remember, ten plagues, that the Lord killed, number ten, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. 
Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be, verse 16, as a sign on your hand and your frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So there it is. There's the answer. Why did God require the firstborn? That was the price for deliverance from Egypt. That was the price. So God says, you're going to bring me your male. Now, they didn't kill their sons. Their sons then could be redeemed, just like you and I can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So they would do this feast, and during this feast, they're commemorating, they're consecrating their firstborn sons. So you have a firstborn son that year, and you're going to consecrate him at this feast. And he'd be redeemed by that blood, that sacrificial lamb that you're celebrating during that Passover or that unleavened bread feast. Why do we do that, Dad? And then again, God wants us to remember. God wants this story to be told again and again and again to all these generations. So it would remind them, the ceremony would remind them of what God had done for them. So what should we do? We know all this stuff, and, and you go, well, Pastor Lee, this is fine, and this is Jewish history. This is the history of the Israelites, but what should we do? What should we, the redeemed of the Lord, do? I'm glad you asked the question, although you didn't. I asked it for you. Here's the answer. Notice Romans 12. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you do something. The redeemed of the Lord the saved. What do I do? What am I supposed to do? Here it is. You present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We've been talking about what? The sacrificial lamb, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, this is what you should do, redeemed. All those that call yourself believers. Paul says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That You live your life holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable King James says service, or, or New King James says service. King James says worship. We're to worship the Lord with our lives. We're to give our bodies, our hands, our eyes, our voices to the service of the Lord. God has done a wonderful thing, and we see it in the Passover. We see it on the cross of Calvary. So what do we do? How do we respond? We, we give our bodies to the Lord as living sacrifices. We make ourselves available for his use. We live as, as sacrificially with our time, talent, and treasure. Sacrificially. We give to the Lord our worship. We give to the Lord our time. Let me close real quick with this illustration. 1968. Olympics in Mexico City, a man named Stephen Akwari, he ran the 42K marathon for Tanzania. Halfway through, he injured his right leg and so bad that he lagged at the very end of the race. When he finally made it into the stadium, he could barely run. He winced at every step he took with his right Leg. The race had been over for more than two hours, but several thousand people were lingering spectators. And when he came into the arena, they all began to clap as he stumbled his way around the track for that last lap and finally crossed the finishing line. 
the crowd roared. Later, a reporter asked him, why did you finish knowing that you had already lost the race? And Ekwari said, I don't think you understand. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. The runner offered himself up for his country. Jesus wants us to offer ourselves up for him. We are to live our life holy and acceptable as living sacrifices because he has done this great work of deliverance. Amen? Father, we thank you for the word tonight. What a, what a beautiful story and reminder. Lord, the Passover and its significance. The truth and its history, Lord, it's, it's marvelous. It's, it just shows your power and you're delivering those people. And yet you displayed that power on the cross, Lord Jesus, for us. You went there willingly and died and you allowed your body to be whipped and beaten and abused and broken because of our sin. You took our sin on your body to the cross and then you paid for our sin, Lord Jesus, by allowing your blood to flow because without the blood, there's no remission of sins. And so you appeased your father's wrath by allowing your blood to make atonement for sin. Oh, we thank you. What power you displayed. What, what love you showed, Lord Jesus. Uh, help us to remember. We don't have a feast every year, but we celebrate Easter. We don't have a feast every year, but we celebrate communion and in baptism. And these other ordinances you've left us for as a reminder, as a remembrance. Lord, may we as your people be joy-filled May we celebrate again and again all that you've done. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus. Amen.